Most cemeteries are in the great outdoors. They're sometimes referred to as outdoor museums. And while, yes, we love to see the statues and the many amazing works of art, is that really it? When I go to a cemetery, I try to think about it as the holy resting place for those who have passed. And remember that each of these people lived and were loved deeply by people devastated by their passing. I go into a cemetery not only wondering what I will see, but who. Who is here? Who did they love? What did they do with their time on this earth? Whose life did they touch with theirs? What is the story that lies beneath? It's all like a mystery to me that I try to uncover. Sometimes I never get their stories, but on this trip to Silverton, Colorado and Hillside Cemetery, I was able to find quite a few, and their stories tell so much about early frontier life and the hardships of living in a mining town. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. friends and files. I'm your host, Lachelle. I'm just really jazzed to be telling you about one of my favorite cemeteries and to have as my co-host, my son-in-law, Marcus. Welcome, Marcus. Hey, everybody. Hey, files, Budding file here. <laughs> Glad to be here. Excited to hear about this cemetery and talk about dead people. Well, you know, that's what we do. I had a friend that said, I don't know if I can listen to your podcast all the time because lots of times it makes me cry. And I was like, spoiler alert. You're going to cry. Somebody dies in every episode. Get the waterworks ready, everybody. (laughs) It's just kind of the name of the game around here. The tissues. All these old miners seem to have nicknames in those days. And so what do you think our nicknames would be, Marcus, if we had lived in the Old West? (laughs) That's a good question. Maybe something like uh, Big Marco, you know, you something go. like that. <laughs> I uh, love it. I have know, four eyes, Marcus. I got glasses. <laughs> so I think I came up with Marcus, the cool kid. Yeah, I like that. I can roll with that. <laughs> I think maybe I would have been like Cemetery Shell. Yeah, that'd be, yeah, that would that'd be perfect. Creepy lady. I don't Creepy know. Lady, yeah. That weird yeah. cemetery tapophile lady. Only they probably didn't know the word tapophile then, so. No, I didn't even know about it till this podcast. <laughs> you know, Marcus, Taylor and I really appreciate how you've embraced our strange cemetery fascination. Yeah, to be a supportive husband, I got to be a, a part of this. I got to tell you, going to cemeteries was not a thing I would do in my free time, <laughs> normally on my own. But uh, I'm glad to go with my wife and help her take pictures or whatever it might be. Exactly. It's actually been really fun. I've been to a lot of few different cool cemeteries. I've had a good time. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you. And like you said, budding taphophile. Budding taphophile. We're turning you. Yes, budding taphophile. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to tell you about my trip to Silverton. 
and a cemetery up on a hill that quickly became one of my favorites. Silverton is a lovely little town at the high altitude of 9,318 feet. Wow. So it's 2,000 feet higher than us yeah, right now. Yeah, Flagstaff. We're up there. The whole town is an area of 534 acres. So it's a small town and a population of about the same. With cute businesses downtown that look basically like they did back in the day and houses trimmed with gingerbread and the streets are wide packed dirt roads, rugged mountain ranges surround the town and even in summer the peaks are still topped with white. Every day around noon you can see puffs of steam and then the black engine of the Durango and Silverton narrow gauge train coming around the bend. Up on the Hillside Cemetery, you clearly hear its whistle calling. The Hillside Cemetery is on a mountainside overlooking the town. The Animus River is flowing off to the side of the town. And from up at the cemetery, you can hear it rushing along, which I loved because yeah. I love the sound yeah. of running water. Picturesque, it's got the water in the background, the trees, the mountains, yeah. sounds like a postcard. We always talk about us being from the dry desert Arizona, yeah. but Water to us is just like a magical it. sound, yeah, right? Yeah, we love it, yeah. Any creek, any river. Yeah, the beach, you know, whatever. So just being up there and just being able to hear that rush of the river, it just was really beautiful. As you look around the cemetery, there are daisies blooming and other summer wildflowers, quaking aspens rustling their leaves in the breeze. It's a quiet place there on the mountainside. But there is a kind of music between the river and the birds singing in the fir trees. There were squirrels and chipmunks scampering, you know, upon and among the graves. It is a peaceful and beautiful place, and I loved it at once. So how do you even find a place like Silverton? Is this a place you were aware of already, or...? So Brad and Dallin had gone camping up there the weekend before, and they had gone outside of Durango, and then they did a big hike that was just outside of that, and then they had just gone up there for the day, and being married to me, <laughs> he spots this cemetery up on the hill, and he was like, okay, we got to at least go up there for a little bit and check it out, so they did that, and so when he got home, he said, so we have a little time next week, and we've been wanting to get away somewhere. I have a place I know you will love. <laughs> so we went up and did the same hike and oh, it was so gorgeous. It was hard, it was a tough hike for me, but loved it. And so then we went into Silverton and just did some of the things there in town. And of course spent a lot of time at the cemetery and taking photographs. It was a fun couple getaway and it was just beautiful. It and sounds so, like it. And just what I needed, you know, to get out after all this time spent indoors yeah. and everything and just get outside. And it, it was just so gorgeous. I just wanted to stay there forever. With the cemetery being on the mountainside, as you wander, you find that you look up and it's like the road is way up there. You know, you've gone yeah. down the hill. And so you kind of climb back up the hill and then you wander some more. And then you look and you're like down the hill again. So you wander back up. So it's kind of like a hike just yeah. doing this. Keeps there. changing the terrain. Yeah. yeah. Just... I'd look up and Brad would be like way down the hill that way. You know, you would get engrossed when you're there, yeah, you know, and wandering. you're just like looking and wandering. And 
you don't realize that you're going you know in one direction or another it's not like the graves are laid out in neat little rows it's a wild place on a mountainside there are beautiful grasses everywhere and nestled among the trees in back and along the grassy hill there's the graves it's rocky with patches of the grasses and flowers and you'll see a tree shoving a headstone you know moving it up and out of the way and the tree was probably a lot smaller a hundred years ago and i see that a lot in cemeteries where they're like oh this would be a cute little tree to put behind jimmy's grave and then it grows and takes over a hundred years later it's totally just knocking over the headstone and many of the plots have some kind of fencing around them wood wrought iron or even plumbing pipes sometimes I think that they just need to do something to keep the elk out of it right. from there because they're huge yeah. animals and knock the stones over. And so something about the wildness and just kind of woodsiness of Hillside Cemetery is what makes it so beautiful. Sometimes we're kind of used to that manicured lawn look. Yeah, very pristine, very neat, very orderly. Mm-hmm. Everything's in rows. Yeah, that old Victorian garden cemetery, which... I love me a good Victorian uh, garden love C- good, yep. cemetery. We love a good clean lawn. <laughs> but at this cemetery from up there, you just look out over everything and just the mountains in the distance and everything in between. It is just so gorgeous. I just thought, now this is an amazing resting place. Yeah. It was a beautiful drive up to Silverton from Flagstaff and Honestly, we drove around and found the cemetery first <laughs> before we even found, you know, our Airbnb. A, a place to stay, huh? <laughs> uh, we're kind of weird that way. Yeah, cemetery first. And we stayed at a place called the Historic Silverton Lodge, and it goes back to 1883, so way back to the beginning of Silverton. Wow. And it has much of it restored, the transom windows, doors, you know, hardware, molding, a lot of it was original. And it used to be the Masonic Lodge upstairs. And there's still some little lights on the fronts that have the symbols for the Freemasons on it. Anyway, I love to stay at historic buildings. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot of history there. Maybe a little spooky there, too. You know, I kept a good eye out for Mm. ghosties. I didn't see nothing. didn't see nothing. I was so sad. You're a good spirit. They're not looking to bother you. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I'm a friend. Yeah. And like I said, we'd done a really big hike on the way up, so we just got dinner and hit the sack. And in the morning, we went to the cemetery. And we'd only been there a short time when it just started pouring rain. And first, we were just like, oh, we'll just keep taking pictures. But pretty soon, we were just getting soaked. So Got rained out of there, huh? Yeah, so we went back into town and to the San Juan County Historical Society Museum and Mining Heritage Center, which was a really interesting wander. You know, sometimes you go to a museum, and they're really great, and sometimes not so much. But this one was really great. And it had so many cool exhibits about the town, the old jail, Silverton's mining history. Not a little hokey exhibit, but really nice, extensive museum with lots of the mining equipment and displays on how mining works. And lots of artifacts that helped give a picture of Silverton's colorful past. It was so worth going. At the end, we were in the bookstore, usually try to pick up a few books from the different places we visit and I asked at the front desk if there were any books about their cemetery and there was a sweet helpful lady named Bev 
that told me that they were no longer in print, but they actually did have some and wow. that the archive was open that day and come over and see what they have. And so we ended up doing that the next day because the sun came out. And so we're like, we better get to the cemetery before it starts to yeah, Got to take advantage of that. Yeah, we had to take our sun. photos and see the cemetery. Then on the next day, we went back to the archives and we saw Bev and met Casey, the director of archives there at the Historical Society. And she was just super great and helped me find info for the podcast. You know, a little side note here, but all the interactions that we had with the people there in Silverton, from the waitress, our B&B owner, everyone in between were just really helpful and friendly. And I think I would have been happy just to move into one of those cute little homes, right? there and then. <laughs> yeah, just move right on in, become part of the community. I know, I was ready to stay. I loved it Open so much. Open up a shop. Lachelle's crazy curiosities. There we go. And oddities. <laughs> Gotta add oddities at the end. Curiosities and oddities. Yeah. So there were two books that really helped me a lot, and they were by a lady named Frida Peterson. She had taken all the records she could find about those that were buried there on the hillside and compiled it into two books. She just did an amazing job. It goes in alphabetical order and has the name and if they had a marker or not and any of the info that she could find. I mean, I can't even imagine the huge project that this was. It must have taken her years to accomplish, but it was really helpful to me and for what I'm doing. And I just wish every cemetery I visit had. Yeah, just had everything like laid out for you. <laughs> exactly. This is where they are. This is who you need to see. Yes. And this is it, what you need to pay attention to. It was really great. I just wish that I had had one that I could take home because yeah. I keep finding pictures and I'm like, oh, what about this person? And I didn't get the info. So I'll be back. I'll, I'll be back to the archives. I'll go visit Bev and Casey another day. But anyway, I appreciated them. Between visiting locals and reading books, I just felt like I really got to understand quite a bit about Silverton and its people in just the few days I was there. You might not think that this is as cool as me, but Casey showed us upstairs where the bulk of the archives are. I think Brad and I, our eyes were just like literally yeah. shining with wonder at the boxes Stunned. of yeah. books and maps and papers. And I just wanted to go grab a box and just dig into the diaries and the ledgers. Yeah. And It was like <laughs> Belle walking in the library of Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> just blown away. Look, there she goes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I would be just that way. It was amazing. Anyway, eventually we got out of Casey's hair and went back to the cemetery. Something I noticed wandering around that cemetery is that many of the grave markers looked newer than the dates that were inscribed on them, and they were kind of small and rectangular. And I thought these had to have been added yeah. over the years by was... maybe the historical society or you know somebody like that so I asked Casey about it and she said yeah maybe the society does it or people will just do it wow. <laughs> I was like yeah. oh they'll take donations and just have them made I know Bev does that sometimes and I was just blown away how totally cool is that yeah how involved people are with yeah. the cemetery Someone there, or many someones there, are going to the trouble of giving people their names, even in death, giving them a grave marker and honor by letting us know that they lived. And this takes research, time, money, and a really big heart. And there were a lot of them, so I was impressed. An interesting thing that's on the newer stones is they usually put how the person had died. 
and it made it super interesting to wander and read, and a few things struck me as I read the headstones. Mining was rough. Mining was dangerous. Living in a frontier mining town was equally rough and dangerous. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> it. sounds like one of those things might be on a TV show. Uh-huh. It reminds me of maybe like a Hell on Wheels, but that was railroads. But right. If it was like an old mining town TV show. Yeah, Silverton. right, right, right. Exactly. Where there just was kind of that new, you know, new town and all the saloons and, yeah. you know, all of that going on. We saw just how hard of a life it was in those early days of Silverton on each of these stones. There were snowslide victims, mining accidents, illness, barroom brawls. Oh, yeah. It was another example of the Old West, rugged individualism and people trying to chisel out a life out west and it wasn't an easy life a little history about silverton is that back in 1860 charles baker and several prospectors entered the san juan mountains in search of wealth they found deposits of gold and silver along the animus river in an area that would later be called baker's park the prospectors stayed through the summer but returned to what is now northern new mexico for the winter News spread of their discovery. However, with the Civil War looming and the discovery being located on Ute Indian land, the miners did not return to the San Juan Mountains until early 1970s. At the time, nearly 1,000 prospectors once again ventured into the high country. The Utes protested, yet they could not stop the steady wave of miners and settlers that had heard of gold and silver in the Colorado Mountains and came over Stony Pass. Silverton's town site was laid out and soon became the center of numerous mining camps. One evening, a group of men were in a saloon discussing the possibility of the San Juan. One fellow remarked, We have silver by the ton. And thus Silverton got its name. <laughs> it is the only incorporated town in the county and boasts not an acre of farmland. <laughs> men started bringing their wives and families and the town started growing. Silverton then caught the eye of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad and the train first rolled into Silverton from Durango in 1882. By the next year, Silverton had a population of 2,000 people with 400 buildings, including two banks, five laundries, 29 saloons, <laughs> several hotels, churches, and a booming red light district, of course. Mm -hmm. It was a mining town. Yeah. They had to have lots of saloons and sporting women. That's right. That's right. They liked sports. You know it. <laughs> the Wild West is how we do it. <laughs> All right, let's get to some of the stories that will tell you a little bit about Silverton and the life there back in those early days, and about the folks I found up on the hill. The earliest recorded burial was for a little girl named Rachel Elizabeth Farrow. She died in 1875, and she was only three or four years old. There was a newspaper article that was from a letter written into the paper, quote, There was a funeral here today. It was that of a little girl. This is Silverton's first funeral and the first natural death in the park. But human nature is the same in this wild country as in more civilized lands. A mother's heart is the same everywhere. The loss of a beloved child brings it the same anguish. The rattle of the clods on the coffin lid fill her with the same despair among these wild mountains as it would in the most beautiful cemetery surrounded by the most costly and beautiful monuments. The grave was made in a beautiful spot on the Howardsville Road, 
which will probably be set aside for the cemetery. The people of the park were very sympathetic and did everything they could to assist the bereaved family. Little Rachel was born in Kansas. Her parents were Martha and Mason Farrow. Rachel died of mountain fever, which is pneumonia. There were no established cemeteries at that time, so her father went up to the second mesa or bench above town on Boulder Mountain and marked out a cemetery. A few burials had taken place at other county locations, but Rachel's grave was the first in what would become known as Hillside Cemetery. Her grave marker was donated in 1995. The family moved to lower elevations before winter set in and eventually settled in Silver City, New Mexico. Such a sad story of such a sweet little girl who was the very first burial at Hillside Cemetery. Wow. Not often do you hear about the first person that's buried in the cemetery. It's really interesting that they have record of that. I thought so too. There are many sad and strange headstones. One reads Peter Dalla, and his name was Paul Patro Dalla Piccola, and so I'm sure he changed it, shortened it to yeah, definitely had Peter Dalla in America, born in Austria, murdered by dynamite. Wow, murdered by dynamite. <laughs> that would, yeah. yeah that I want to be... know the rest of that story. Yeah. So, Marcus, there's a little building there at the entrance to the cemetery, and we just thought that it was probably a shed for maintenance tools and stuff, but guess what it is? little building next to a cemetery, um, maybe a storage room for headstone tools, carve out some headstones. <laughs> I know, we. that's kind of what we thought. But we asked Casey again, and it's a building that would hold a casket for a few bodies during the winter. Wow. So there's so much snow up there and the ground is so frozen that they can't always dig a grave in the ground. Yeah, too hard. Yeah, and so they may need to wait until they can dig it in the spring. So it's kind of like a mausoleum, but it's the waiting place. And so maybe if you die during the winter time, that's where they keep them till they can do something. Wow, yeah. I wonder if that's common in cold places like that. I wonder how many of those there are around the rest of the country. Because I've never heard of such a thing. Good question. Probably not any in our state. No, definitely not here. (laughs) Even though we live in kind of a cold place up here, I don't know. No. I think we can always dig. So another very strange site were two stones, not two feet away from each other. And one said, John Loftus died October 1st, 1904, shot by Walter Atterbury. And then in quotes, my God, I'm done for. So like maybe his last words there. Yeah. And born in County Mayo, Ireland. And then get this, we get to the next one and it says Walter Atterbury. What? Isn't that the guy who shot him? Yes. So so he died the same day, October 1st, 1904. It says, age 30 years, suicide after holdup of Hub Saloon and shooting of John Loftus. So they buried the killer right next to him. Yeah. Wow. What What a savage time. <laughs> I don't know. I don't For know some reason, that creeped me out. Yeah. <laughs> More than anything else, I turn to Brad and I go, 
Okay, if somebody kills me, do not put his name on my headstone. Yeah, don't put, don't do that. Don't give him that recognition. Don't deserve exactly. that. Yeah, I was like, be remembered. Uh, and yeah. then I mean, I guess you can see why they buried him close by. It's like, well, we have to dig two graves. Yeah, you know? might as well. I mean, yeah, their stories are intertwined. I guess. So keep them together. But really, the guy who shoots you, you're gonna put him right next to you for the rest of I don't know. Mm-mm. I don't like that. <laughs> Disrespect. Yeah. Anyway, it sounded like there was a shootout at the saloon, and then later the other guy shoots himself. It's sad. So there were several gravestones that said that they were killed in the Shenandoah mine snowslide. I kind of looked into that, and I found a little article from Arizona Journal Miner, March 20th, 1906. Silverton, Colorado, March 19th. Miners employed in the Shenandoah mine were caught in a great snowslide early this morning and swept to death. The bodies are not yet recovered. Assistance was summoned from Silverton to help dig out the victims from the snow. There were two different reports. One says that men had left the mine and were on the way to Silverton to avoid starvation. I guess that would be a reason to leave. That's a good I don't know. When one of the party at a particularly dangerous part of the trail on the steep side of the mountain stumbled, which started the snow sliding, and the entire side of the mountain seemed to be moving. The other report said, which is really different, in the early evening hours, the Shenandoah boarding house was destroyed in the slide. In the Silverton Standard newspaper, it said that the building was described by a survivor as being smashed into kindling wood, with the men all thrown out into the slide at one time. 21 men were in the boarding house eating dinner. That sounds awful. You're just yeah. sitting there eating dinner and then all of a sudden the whole place is just, just washes you gone. Away. Just taken out snow. It's crazy. It stuff. seems so soft. It's just <laughs> so pillowy. It's crazy how much damage yeah. it can do. So I saw several of their headstones. One of the men was Antonio or Tony Oberto. Born in Italy, age 38 years, and another was named Bert W. Albert, and he was only 21, and he was killed in the snowslide as well. Another similar story was that of Jonathan Thomas, James Jewell, Frank Green, and John Green. The last two were father and son, and it says, they were hurled into eternity. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> they just hurled, hurled away. Hurled into just eternity. Knocked out of the park. <laughs> They're gone. While well, asleep in their cabin at the Ajax shaft of Sultan Mountain, they were hurled into eternity by a snowslide. <laughs> as soon as the tragedy was discovered the next morning, 50 men rushed to the scene of the disaster, and the remains of the unfortunate victims were dug out of the mass of snow and broken timbers looking for the men. All four men were dead when found, and their remains were dragged to town on hand sleds. On a cold Saturday afternoon, the solemn funeral service over the remains of the four men took place, and they were followed to the graveyard by the entire male population of the grief-stricken town. And there was also this little poem, maybe it was included in the newspaper article, and it said, quote, Are they gone from our sight forever and I?" When the breath departs and we lay them low, are they gone forever or only a day? Do they sleep without waking beneath the snow? Wow, so do you think like, since, well, when you were talking about the whole male population, 
coming out and carrying those men, is that something like the equivalent of how we today, you know, all drive our cars together from the, mm-hmm. the funeral service to the actual resting place of the person? Was it something similar like that? Yeah. That's what I imagine. Mm-hmm. And they would call it like the funeral procession, yeah. which we do too, or funeral cortege. Um, and I, I read this a lot in this book. That's what was so great is you had newspaper articles and their obituaries and things like that they would totally describe some of these people's weddings and where the wedding breakfast was where they honeymooned and then of course the funeral and what church it was at and who spoke and who sung and then that always talked about the funeral procession and how many people there were and how long stretched out blockwise so it kind of sounded like all the men in the community were like, whoa, four men, fathers, yes. you know, sons were just taken at once. And so I think it was kind of a big tragedy that was early on in the history. James Jewell's headstone says at the top of it, do they sleep without waking beneath the snow? And so a little piece of that, that someone put on later, they didn't have one of the older stones. They had one of the newer ones. and. You know, in those days, how do you get a really great stone? You know, Especially probably. in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little later on, I think, when the train and everything was coming in. Yeah, not a lot of importing. And if you could afford it, even. Yeah. So I think that there were a lot of wooden markers or crosses that were made. Yeah, you know, or rock that was painted or, you know, something like that. In a lot of cemeteries, it's like that. We go and now it's just nothing and we're like it's so sad no one you know remembered them but at the time i mean over a hundred years ago there was probably something that very dour messages too very very (laughs) sad always describing the death Mm -hmm. not a lot of uh they're with the angels now kind of thing that's true um one of the other guys jonathan thomas his stone says a Silverton pioneer died March 8, 1878, which is my birthday almost 100 years later. Weird. And then the headstones for Frank and John Green, that was the father and son. So anyway, it was just yeah, kind of sad. Very sad. There's so many sad mining stories, like I said. I found a ton of them, and I just saw how dangerous mining was. And then when you go to the museum, you kind of understand why it was so dangerous and you see you know the things that they were doing and how they used them and then you see the number of graves of miners and the number of miners that really weren't that old yeah died really early in some sort of accident but the money they could make yeah worth the risk yeah they they definitely thought it was worth it so there was the dangers of blasting open shafts cave-ins And a lot of times, those that were not killed were many times maimed or blinded or suffered. One of the things I saw a lot in the book was called Miner's Con, which is probably like miner's consumption. Affects their lungs. mm -hmm. They got all that coal dust. They were just breathing it. Black lung. They were just breathing it all the time, and then it just ruined their lungs. And so when they coughed, and yeah, it was really, really hard life. So... Also, being a mining and frontier town, we know that there are a lot of shoot 'em up type stories, and there was no shortage of these that I came across. Oh, yeah. Fighting over mining areas, I'm sure, mm-hmm. or things they found. Yeah. So, next week, 
you and I are going to get into more of the murder and mayhem stories, but I'll give oh, you boy. one good one to hold you over until next time. Oh, yeah, please do. <laughs> like I said, I'd watch this TV show. Silverton was a TV show I'd watch. Exactly. I would too. One of the stories was about two best friends, and they were both Teamsters. What's a Teamster? Oh, they hauled freight. Oh, okay. They okay. hauled freight for a guy, and so they'd have their big wagons and, you know, would head off to the mines and drop stuff off and from here and there. But these two, so they were best friends and I guess worked together. There was a lot of snow, and so it was blockaded. They couldn't get through to where they needed to, so gave them a day off. So they decide to spend the day after they got their pay drinking and playing cards. We're, a couple of wild boys. We're so surprised. Yeah. One of the men, one of the men, Tolls, whose first name was never found, and the other was Arkansas John Barnett. Arkansas John. They love their nicknames. They love their nickname. Arkansas John. Tolls claimed that Barnett owed him some money. And sometime before midnight, still drinking, they went into Ed Gorman's saloon. Barnett went to the faro table, laid $5 on one of the cards to win, which... That's a lot of mm, money. Those days, I mean, yeah. they could buy a pair of boots for like a dollar. He's dropping down the big bucks. <laughs> so, I mean, that was money. Tolls, who was owed the money, decides to go over and pick up the money and starts for the door, saying, that makes us even. <laughs> That's not the same. Yeah. Same so, Arkansas John says, put that money back which his friend refused to do. And so Arkansas John says, I'll take care of you later. He stays at the faro table for a bit and then takes out his jackknife, opens it and starts for Tall's, who is standing near the door and they start scuffling, fighting and Tolls bites Barnett over the eyebrow and holds fast. Wow, interesting place to bite somebody. <laughs> right above the eye, that's the weak spot. <laughs> Friends soon separate them, and Tolls says, I'm cut damn bad. They laid him on a poker table, and inside of three minutes, the man was dead. Now, strangely... Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> right. This man got bit to death? Is that what was going on no. here? So, that was the other guy. So oh, okay. The guy, right. the guy with the knife... I got you ...went for his friend, and I his see. friend, in somehow in the scuffle, bites him on the eye, but what they don't say in the story and the information yes. is that somehow he gets cut. He yeah, yeah. gets stabbed. Yeah. I mean, he either got stabbed in a really vital area or several times. So they laid him on the poker table and inside of three minutes, the man was dead. Now, it's safe for us to assume while he was biting his friend's eyebrow off, his friend was stabbing him with his jackknife. Yeah. So Barnett immediately says, my God, I've killed my best friend. For it was a fact that when sober, the two men had been best friends. A few months later, Arkansas John Barnett was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to two years and nine months of hard labor at the Cannon City Penitentiary. That's it, huh? It's so weird what the sentences were yeah. back in those days. They're like, well, you killed your best friend. Two years. Two years. Two hard years. Work hard. Get out. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, in some so places, many illnesses at the time that they're probably not going to make it out of there anyways. <laughs> so. I don't know. Yeah. So that, that was pretty crazy. That also shows this what happens when guys get drunk. When we 
get a little money is involved. Get the money involved. Poker. Take $5 from your friend. Mm -mm. Might not happen (laughs) these days. Or it might. Depends on the kind of friends you have. So one of the first monuments that caught my eye when we got to the cemetery was like a large, tall monument. It's all white and has a cross on the top. As I got closer, I realized that below the monument was a square building with that on the top of it. And it's actually a mausoleum for the Cole family. With it being on the hill and the roof is almost level with the road, you couldn't really tell that there was the mausoleum. But when you walk down and around it, you see that the door is on the other side and it had a glass window with bars. So you can actually see into the crypt and there's about 12 wooden caskets inside. I read later that it was iron, but the outsides of these, maybe the iron is inside wooden caskets. I don't really understand it, but there are about four cremains there as well. So there's about 16 different people that are. Yeah. You sent that picture to Taylor and I saw it. I'm not messing with that. That's where I draw the line. This looks like something that would get Scooby-Doo and the gang in some trouble. Because you look in there, I saw the pictures. You can look in there, you can see everything. Like a hand might just reach out of one of those things at any point. Do yourself a favor, listeners. Go on the blog post. Make sure you see this picture because it's, uh, it great. it's definitely creepy. It's scary for sure. Yeah, I sent them to Taylor and to Randy. First Taylor sent back, Oh, heck nah, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd be walking right she away from that. that. Yeah, that's where we got to draw the line right there. <laughs> and Randy was like, ooh, I'd be walking right towards that. Yeah. So that was kind of funny. Well, you know me, I did walk toward it and stood up against the window, shading my eyes so I can look inside. It's pretty dark outside because there was cloud cover and it was about to rain again and it's starting to sprinkle. And it was kind of all kinds of creepy with cobwebs across the window. And, but you look in the window and see like 12 coffins on three rows of shelves. There was dust all over on the floor, on the coffins. You could see that there were name plates on the end of each one, but it was hard to read the names because it was kind of dark. And, and there was, I don't know, maybe a little shrine with a little cross on it and with a rosary draped over it, a candle holder, and an empty flower vase. I got some pretty cool photos, so... Yeah, I've seen it. Like I said, out. check it out on the blog. Mm-hmm. When you look in there, it looks like there's something that might have been in like an old haunted house kind of movie. <laughs> if you want to start a novel or some sort about a spooky mausoleum, this picture will give you all the details you need to help you write that story because it is it looks like a movie set almost. It was great. So of course this is the point now where I'm interested to find out, okay, we see kind of the creepy little mausoleum. Who is there? Who is this? That's the podcast, right? Cuz I want to know. I want to know what lies beneath. Yep, yep. <laughs> Who's in this building? And Luckily, I was able to find some information on them in that Silverton Cemetery book at the archives. The family's name was Cole. On the front of the white monument near the road, and it's got the cross up there. Um, At the bottom, it says their name, Cole. And then above that, it says, Hannah, beloved wife of William Cole, died September 22nd. 
1891, aged 27 years. And then below that, it says Hannah M. Cole died May 4, 1887, aged one month, 10 days. Sad. So you can already tell that she died tragically young. And the way that it was worded, it felt like she was really loved by her husband. And then on the back side of the mausoleum, it says Cole, and then it says 1913, which I assumed that it was the year that it was built. So I found out that Hannah was born in Queenstown, County Cork in Ireland. She came to America when she was a girl of 16. William Cole, or Billy, was also from Queenstown, Ireland. I'm not sure if they knew each other there, but they both came to America. Billy in 1874, when a young man, and Billy and Hannah married in 1880 in Conejos, Colorado, and in 1882 moved to Silverton to live permanently. In Silverton, Billy operated the City and Silverton restaurants, then opened a boarding and lodging house, Then their daughter, Hannah, who died in infancy in 1887, which is the other name that's on the monument, passed away. She was originally buried in the cemetery. In 1890, Billy established his gents furnishing store in Silverton and continued in that business for the rest of his life. As I was looking into things, I found this awesome advertisement from an old Silverton Standard newspaper that was for his store. Wow. And so I'll put that in the blog. It was so cool. And the cool fonts and all the different items for sale. And they were, I mean, I think the most expensive thing was maybe $5 or something. But it was like (laughs) coats and boots and pants and overalls and all of those things. All the stuff to make you look fly back in the Wild West times. (laughs) All the things you needed to be the coolest miner ever. And so then I found out that Hannah and Billy had five other children, Jack, James, Josie, Mary-Kate, and Nora. They were married for 11 years when Hannah passed away. And although it wasn't mentioned in her obituary, she possibly had given birth to another child, resulting in her death and the new baby's death. Oh, tragic. I know. Years later, a family member said that there was a baby in the casket with Hannah when she was buried. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of your clue. Her obituary said, Hannah, the loved wife of Billy Cole, was taken sick with uremic convulsions from which she never rallied. She was a lady of wonderful vitality and robust constitution. I just love the way they... Wonderful vitality. Yes, the way they express themselves in those days. We just don't talk like this anymore. And none suspected some dread malady was gnawing at her vitals. So I had no idea what uremic convulsion was, so I looked that up. I don't know what that is either. I'm glad you did. (laughs) Of course, I have to dig and find out what it is, but it says it's due to uremia or retention in the blood of material that should have been expelled by the kidneys and convulsion caused by the toxic effects of accumulated waste products and inorganic acids in renal failure. So, I mean, who knows if the doctors knew what was really going on? I don't know if they had a great doctor there at the time, but they seem to think that she may have had maybe kidney disease or something that caused kidney failure, and then she went into convulsions. And if she had just given birth to... So that's what I'm 
confused about was this, like, did that cause her to lose the baby or did she die and therefore she had the baby and the cat? You know, I don't know what yeah. happened, but so either way, I mean, to me, that just sounds so horrifying it really does. and terrible for Billy and those other five little children to lose your wife and baby and for the kids to lose their mama. They'd only been married 11 years and now Billy was left with five little kids. The oldest was only 10 years old and the youngest was 14 months. Wow. So they basically had every two years, you yeah. know, there was another kid. And so their hands were full. I just can't imagine the pain that they all felt at her passing. It says that Hannah's funeral cortege formed at the Coles residence, then proceeded to St. Patrick Catholic Church, which we're not surprised because they're from Ireland. Yep, yep. <laughs> of course it's St. Patrick Catholic Church, where every seat was occupied and many could not even get inside the building. This helps tell us how she was really loved there. The procession to the cemetery, in spite of stormy weather, was over two blocks long and was one of the largest ever seen in the little isolated mountain town. She was also originally buried in a grave at Hillside. Billy took care of his family and the kids went to school and grew up there in Silverton. And it was said that, quote, the busy father made good citizens of the children. He reared to manhood and womanhood, unquote. Another thing I noticed is he never remarried. Oh, you had love for Hannah. Yeah. Couldn't stop that. And no one would have begrudged that the poor man with five children. I mean, yeah, how, you yeah, know. that's a yeah. That's Many people needed to remarry in those days, but he never did. So I just feel like that was kind of romantic, and was, that they yeah. had a love story. That was his one love. Mm -hmm. He said, "I'll have no one else." Yeah. Taylor would like that. I know. That's what Taylor would want. Taylor would want me to just, just be lonely for the rest of my life. I'm taking care of our five kids, and that's it. We then find that 20 years later, their daughter, Mary Kate, was the next in the family to pass and died in 1911 at the age of 28. So about the same age as when her mother died. You can tell also in her obituary how much she was loved in Silverton and was one of those that talked about their fancy wedding reception and everything about it and how loved she was by the whole community. She'd grown up there. And so I'll have that story in the blog as well. But when she died, she left a husband and a three-year-old son. Oh, so like a mirror, same thing. Yeah. When the family mausoleum was built by Billy in 1913, the date yep. that was on there, Hannah and her daughters Baby Hannah and Mary Catherine Cole Mullen were moved from their graves and placed in steel caskets within the vault of the newly built Cole Mausoleum at Hillside. The mausoleum was the only one of its kind in the southwestern part of Colorado, and it would be where other family members later joined them. The next of the family to pass was Billy and Hannah's son, James Edward Cole. He died seven years after his sister in 1918. So, Marcus, what clue does that give you as to how he died? Do you know what happened well, in 1918? Well, yeah, thank you, history class. Um, <laughs> I do pay attention. And um, I do know that Spanish influenza was around that time. Yeah. So the Spanish flu probably yep. wiped out poor little James. Yeah, it did. And it hit this little town like a ton of bricks. 
Whenever I'm walking through a cemetery and see that someone died in 1918, I always wonder, was it the Spanish influenza? Yeah. I'm going to do another episode about Silverton and the Spanish flu because... Did it hit it, pretty hard there? It, I mean, worse per capita than almost any other town. Wow. And so it's a really interesting story, but I'm just kind of feeling that right now we're kind of all sick of the pandemic idea. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure we're, yeah. we want to hear for that. about that. We're not ready for that right now. <laughs> we already Still talked about yellow fever, so I'm thinking yeah. maybe we'll just lay off the flus Took for a little bit. Take off the illnesses for a bit. <laughs> so, but at some point we'll get back. But James died of Spanish flu and his obituary said, Jim, with his cheery disposition, brightening the pathways of life. It says he was in business with his father and that Jim had a way with people. He was honest and friendly and an exceptional citizen. He made sure people were fed and clothed whether they could pay or not. Saying, pay me when you can. And it was said about his father, Billy, that this was such a heavy blow to crush his spirit, the death of his youngest son, James. Poor Billy, I think it just had too much grief in yeah, his life. He went through a lot. And this last death just really was hard on him, losing another family member. And it said in the writings that Billy's friends thought his health began to fail at this time, although he silently carried his sorrow and continued his daily routine. By now, you just can't help but like and respect Billy. Billy's a hero. Billy's a champion, a strong man. I think really so. Really holding too. it down really persevering even in hard times, losing all the family. Yeah. You just really could see that he loved his wife and his children, and he cared and raised those little children on his own. And by all of their obituaries, I could really tell that they were really amazing people that everyone in the town loved as well. And even though the Cole's story and Billy's, you know, it's not the most exciting, it's full of crazy escapades and... I just think that what I really liked about Hannah and Billy is that they were people yeah. just like us. Just like they loved their family. Mm -hmm. He loved his family. They worked hard. They had kids. Yes. They were part of the community. They were beloved by their friends. Yeah. They were just good people. Sometimes we just fantasize about the old days. Everybody was gunslinging. a gunslinging ranger and, you know, mm -hmm. a cowboy or whatever it might be. Most of the time, just a lot of normal people. Yeah. I don't know. Their, their story just kind of struck me. And, and I kept thinking, you know, oh, for the podcast, are people going to think it's boring? It's not that no. exciting. But I was like, this is why I do people this. People need to hear that. Yeah. I want to know the stories. And I think that every person is interesting and important. And even though, like I said, there's, you know, it wasn't like high travel and all this escapades yeah. and crazy things. They're just good people that raised good people and made a difference yeah exactly there's a lot more billy and hannah's in the world than there were bonnie and clyde's <laughs> exactly so. exactly and we love the bonnie and clyde story and everybody yeah. loves that but it's like be billy and hannah be I just, billy and hannah i love billy and hannah those are a couple goals be billy and hannah yeah but don't lose your spouse that's not, that's <laughs> oh that's true we don't yeah. want to be billy and we don't want to be really. billy and hannah, exactly I mean, yeah. but yeah have that kind of love billy lived until the age of 80 Wow. He died on March 7th, 1932, which means he was without Hannah for roughly 41 years. I put all his obituary on the blog, but 
This said that even though he was older, he was still running his store and just living his life until a few days before he passed away. Yeah, he just just kept on going. Just kept on going. Kept himself busy. So here's a little piece of his obituary. It said, quote, He was known and revered by hundreds of people and was a central figure in the business and welfare of San Juan County and Silverton for 50 years. Probably the most widely known merchant in southwestern Colorado. He had built a business with personal friendships which spread to many parts of the globe. Billy was keenly interested in children and young people and his kindly counsel created a lasting impression on the generations of youngsters who knew him. And if you didn't love Billy before now, (laughs) it tells how he worked to upkeep the cemetery. Yes. So, of course, that made him, you know, even a softer place in my heart. In your heart, yes. Keeping the cemeteries looking (laughs) good. And it said that he was really knowledgeable about where people had been buried and what year and all the data of who was there and and was helpful in the upkeep of the graves and especially for those who had no family in the mm. area, he would always take care of. A real taffophile. <laughs> and it said that he would go and decorate on Decoration Day, which then became Memorial Day. And he took it seriously. He was survived by a son and two daughters. So out of the seven babies and children, three was all that was left when he passed. But he had nine grandchildren. I'm sure that he found great joy in. Papa Billy. So his funeral was held at the church that he helped found and build St. Patrick Catholic Church. So I thought that was really interesting. I'd read all, like all of them, you know, had their funerals at St. Patrick Catholic Church. But I was like, well, of course. But then to read that he had actually helped build, I was like, well, of course he helps build a church, right? What can't he do? What can't he do? And all the businesses in Silverton were closed for his funeral. The snow was very deep, but the church was filled to overflowing as a silent tribute to his memory. He was laid to rest in the family vault at Hillside. And then one more story about Billy that I'll put in the blog, but it was about how some of his friends and family from Durango were determined to get to a side before he died and tried to walk over the snowy mountain pass and had to be rescued. Popular guy. He was. So all of this and everything I read just really made me like the Coles, and I could see just how everyone who knew them really did love and respect the Coles. As I always seem to say, there are so many stories, too many to tell. And we will definitely be coming back to tell more stories, some of them next week. But this is an amazing town and cemetery. So don't worry, Marcus. I'll tell you some more stories. Yes. Thank you. Give me more (laughs) stories about Silverton. I need to see season two of this. (laughs) And so next week we'll get to some more. But um, thank you, sweetie, for being my co-host today. It was a blast. I had a good time learning about Silverton. Thanks to all of you who are listening. We so love and appreciate all of you and your interest and support. As of this airing, we have well over 800 plays so far. Yeah, I'm going to get us to 1,000. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Single-handedly. Yep. <laughs> You're Put the best. On my back. <laughs> a mountain town. They're pioneer dead on a beautiful mountainside. I'll definitely be going back. It was different from any cemetery I'd been to. Rugged, tough, but beautiful. A little like the inhabitants of this town, then and now. So even though the mausoleum may seem a little creepy, it is really filled with people who lived 
beautiful lives. Sometimes you have to look deeper. And that's why I'm here to find the story that lies beneath. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stones bones and shadows also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners Thank you.